Well, now, today is a day when many people are resolving to do many types of things. Lose weight, stop smoking, move house, change job, you name it, the list goes on. And, of course, many of those will be disappointed with all of their efforts. And one of the main reasons that people will be disappointed with their efforts um, is because they won't accomplish it at all, or whilst they make some progress, they will fall considerably short of what they'd hoped for. And what's the reason for that? Well, I suspect that for many people, they can see where they want to be or where they hope to get to, but what they don't often do is pause to consider how they will get there and what will be required in order to accomplish it. And many just don't have the necessary willpower or the necessary resources to accomplish that which they think they would like to achieve. And this morning, as a new year stretches out in front of us, I want to bring to you three things which will help to settle and establish you for whatever lies ahead this year. Whatever opportunities God places before you, whatever trials and difficulties God may have reserved for you this year. And rather than be thinking, I'm going to achieve this or that, the Christian can rest confident that whatever it is God would have you do for him, wherever it is perhaps that God may have you go, whatever circumstances God is going to take you through this year, you have something which will hold you firm and enable you to stand. Whatever it is that God brings your way. Because as we read in our opening psalm, all of your days have been fashioned by him, even as you were being formed in your mother's womb. Three things that will keep you and sustain you if you permit them to. If you permit them to. These things will not guarantee ease. Christ's life was not a life of ease. Far from it. And you're not promised a life of ease nor do these things offer the kind of rewards that those who are without Christ are seeking. When it comes to the trappings of success that the world values, Jesus didn't just have few of them, he had none of them. None. But these things will keep and sustain you as a Christian. These things will keep and sustain you as a follower and as a witness of Jesus Christ, I wonder, is that something which is top of your agenda at the start of a new year? That you will be a faithful witness and follower of Christ. That you will grow as a witness and follower of Christ. Well, perhaps during the course of today, God will help us, if we need it, to reshuffle our priorities. So that we make being a follower of Christ the chief thing over all the other things that we have to give ourselves to in the year that lies before us. Now, before I get to the three points that I want to bring you, I want to highlight something which undergirds all of them, and it's essential that we don't miss this. I want you to notice something which is essential and foundational, without which you would just be like anyone else trying to make a resolution at this time of year. I want you to take careful note of the first two words of verse 5, which, depending on which translation of the Bible you have in front of you, will say either through whom or through him or possibly by him. Through whom? Well, who is the whom? Well, of course, it's 
the Son of God, verse 3, Jesus Christ, through him. The gospel, being a Christian, concerns Jesus Christ, says Paul as he opens his letter. It's all about him. It centers upon him. It all is around him. We saw at the close of Luke's gospel how Jesus showed that all of the Old Testament scriptures speak of him and point to him. Matthew, in the opening two chapters of his gospel account, as he records the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, five times quotes from the Old Testament to show that those prophecies have been fulfilled in Jesus. And Paul reminds his readers of that vital truth as he begins his letter. And we see what he says at the second half of verse 3. Born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And also in verse 2, it's what he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And Paul reinforces that for us here. And these things that I'm going to speak about this morning will only have any relevance, will only have any meaning, and can only be known through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these things are for those who have turned to Christ already in repentance and faith. Those who've been savingly united to Christ. Those who can say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 And if at the moment that's not your position, then that's the main thing you need to consider this morning. That you need to come to God through Christ. That you need that new life that only Christ can give. And the things that I'm going to be talking about now are through him and through him alone. Only through Jesus are these things possible in the life of a Christian. So let's look at verses 5 to 7 and consider three things. Number one, if you're a Christian, you are a beloved recipient of grace. A beloved recipient of grace. All Christians are those upon whom God has fixed his love and to whom God has bestowed a gift. Long before you existed, God knew you and loved you. God's love for you does not depend upon your being lovely or lovable. That's good news for me. I don't know what you think about that, but that's good news for me. Now, of course, many people in their relationships are very insecure and anxious and feel very vulnerable in those relationships because this is how they think. He or she loves me because they've seen something in me which they like. Whatever that is, I have to try and make sure I don't lose it. Because if I do, they may stop loving me. And what if they meet someone else 
who is more likable than I am. Where does that leave me? People think that way. And that way of thinking means that their love for me is dependent upon me. And if I'm not careful, I'll lose their love. So I have to work at being lovely. I have to work at being lovable in order that I might continue to be loved. And this also leads to people thinking like this. No one will ever, could ever love me. Because I'll never be lovely or lovable. I've got good news for you. When it comes to God's love for you, you can get rid of all thoughts like that. There is nothing you could ever do to merit God's love. And even before you existed, even before you'd done a thing, God knew you and God loved you. If you're a believer. His love for you is the result of his loveliness and his goodness, not yours. God's love for you is on account of his infinite mercy and grace and kindness. And because he is faithful and unchanging, you can be certain that his love for you will never waver and it will never fail. It will remain constant and it will, it will remain true and according to his love for you his purpose to save you and redeem you to himself and he did that even before time began he's provided the means of your salvation in Christ and there is nothing that's ever going to change where you currently stand in Christ there's nothing that will change his love for you there's nothing that will change that which he's done for you in his son Christ Jesus, he will go on loving you. You will remain the object of his constant and unfailing love. As the hymn writer put it, we can say, you can say, I found a friend. Oh, such a friend. He loved me before I knew him. He drew me with his cords of love and thus he bound me to him. That's the love that God has for the Christian. He drew me and bound me to himself. And on that basis, we can say and we know and you can know, I've been a wonderful recipient of his grace. He's loved the unlovable. Undeserved kindness and favour which you've received as a gift from God. We've been through a season of giving and receiving gifts. Now, if you receive a gift from a family member at Christmas, well, it's lovely and it's welcomed and it's treasured, but receiving a gift from a family member, it's not altogether unexpected, is it? In fact, some of you would get quite peeved if you didn't get a gift. I can think of a few people who might actually get quite angry if a loved one didn't give them a gift at Christmas. But it's supposed to be a gift. Yeah, but, yeah, but I expect one doesn't quite actually tally with the word gift but have you ever been given a gift when it wasn't expected have you ever received a gift when none was anticipated something has prompted someone to give you a token of their love or of their appreciation and out of the blue a gift arrives let me tell you that makes it a very special and valued gift and the value 
doesn't actually lie in the thing that's being given. The value lies in the sentiment that's behind it. Some gifts are given because it's expected. It's Christmas, it's your birthday. But an unexpected gift that's being given out of nothing more than a sincere heart that wants to say thank you, well, that makes it a very precious gift. And a gift can have an even greater impact if you know that the one who gave you that gift has no good reason to give you anything. Suppose there is someone and you know you've deeply hurt and offended them. You've tried to apologise, you've tried to make amends, but seemingly to no avail. You just cannot restore that which has been lost. And you know it's all been your fault. You are the guilty one here. And you've caused this issue. And then one evening, just before Christmas, there's a knock on the door. And there stands that person. And they're holding a gift. And they give it to you. And they say, this is for you. I forgive you. I want us to be restored. That gift would be a very special gift. No matter what it was. That gift would make a big impact. There would be a depth of meaning and significance unmatched by any other gift that you received. Because of what lies behind it. And you see, God has bestowed a gift in grace. And God hasn't done it because he's obliged to, like we give gifts at birthdays and Christmas. Because let's be honest, we're obliged to half the time. But that's not how God gives. And God doesn't give you a gift because you are such a fantastic specimen of humankind that he just has to reward you for being so great. God has bestowed a gift even though there are a million and one reasons why you deserve nothing from him. Remember the grace that you've been shown. Remember the gift that you could never have earned. How long could the list be that God could write of the reasons why he should give you nothing? But he has loved you. And he's bestowed grace. Now, why is this important to remember at the start of a new year? Because it reminds you that without God you are nothing. But through Christ you've now become something because God has loved you and because God has shown you grace. And that means that you now have a new and clear identity in the world in which you live. And that leads us on to our second point. You are called you're loved, God has given you his grace and you're called. And there's two aspects to your calling in these verses. You're called of Jesus Christ and you're called to be saints. You'll see both of those phrases in those verses. Now on several occasions in the Bible, in the New Testament, Christians are described as the called the called, because it describes what has happened to us. 
God has called you to himself. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, let's take a a little uh, picture. Here's a group of people listening to a gospel preacher. They all hear exactly the same message. They hear exactly the same words, the same explanations, the same illustrations, the same exhortations to repent and trust in Christ. And at the end of that meeting, just one in that group comes to saving faith. It could have been more than one. The point is, someone did get saved whilst all the others didn't. They've all heard exactly the same thing. Yet just that one gets saved. Now, why? Well, there's several whys that we could ask. The first why we should actually ask is, why did anyone get saved? And then we can ask, well, why not all of them? Why did anyone get saved and why not all of them? Well, for this reason, as the preacher was preaching, God was calling But God wasn't calling in the same way that the preacher was preaching. The preacher was applying the gospel to everybody because he must. Because everybody needs to hear the gospel. But God was calling. But he wasn't calling everyone. He just called that one. Or two. Or three. But God called through the preacher preaching. And you see, when God calls like that, the result is always the same. That person is a sinner saved. Always. A sinner saved. Why? Because God called them. Because you see, your salvation is entirely God's doing. He called you to himself. He drew me with his cords of love, and he bound me to himself. That's the gospel. That's a sinner becoming saved. And just as Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, it's a life-giving call which allows that person to respond. God calls. Jesus said, John chapter 10 There is a reason why those who don't believe do not believe. And the reason why those who don't believe do not believe, said Jesus, is because they are not of his sheep. But those who are of his sheep hear his voice. He knows them and they follow him and he gives them eternal life and they'll never perish and neither shall anyone snatch them out of his hand. It's in John 10. God calls. He knows his sheep and his sheep hear hear his voice and they follow. Elsewhere, Paul says this. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.9, you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's you if you are in Christ Jesus this morning. You've been called into the fellowship of Christ. You've been drawn into union with Christ. That's part of the call. It makes you one with Christ. That's what the call does. When he wrote to Timothy, he said this, God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus 
before time began. Called to be one of the saints. God has done this. And you've been called to be saints, the text says there, the end of, middle of verse 7, called to be saints. It's an interesting word, saints, because it only ever appears in the plural. There's no one in the Bible who individually is called a saint. It's always used to speak collectively of God's people, saints. And it signifies, therefore, that the fellowship that we have with the other called ones. We're all called to be saints. And the word saint signifies those who have been made holy and consecrated and set apart to God. Paul talked about himself being set apart to the gospel as an apostle. But all Christians have been set apart to God. We've been separated from the rest of this sinful world. We're not like everybody else anymore. We're under new ownership now. You are his. You belong to Christ to love him and live for him and to serve him. That's who you are. You're one of the saints. As an an unknown year lies before you, remember, first of all, you're the object of God's constant and unfailing love and you've received his grace. Remember, you are the called. God has called you to himself. He's called you out of the world. He's called you to be different. He's called you to be a servant and a follower. He's called you into fellowship with Christ. You are his and he is yours forever and forever as we sing. You've been called to be one of the saints, which means now that your identity is as one who's been set apart from this world to know and love and follow and serve the Lord Jesus. That's who you are now. That will make you very different from the world in which you live. You still live in that world, but it will make you different in it. Does it? Has it? Will it? Paul said to the Ephesian church that they should have a walk, in other words, live your life worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That calling makes a difference in the life of a Christian. God has called you. He's called you of Christ and he's called you to be saints. Which leads to our final point. For obedience to the faith. We see that there in verse 5. Through him, for obedience to the faith. Now, Paul's talking about himself and his apostleship, but it's, it's true for every single Christian, everyone who is one of the called, for obedience to the faith. Paul says that wherever in the world Christians find themselves, they should be unmistakable as those who are living their lives in the nations in obedience to the faith and are doing so for Christ's name. For Christ's name. So being obedient to the faith is something we do through Christ. We need and we have the very life of Christ within us and we do it for Christ. So it's done through him and it's done for him. We can't do it through him if he has not come in and changed us. Well, we never want to do it for him unless he's come in and changed us. We're to be obedient to the faith. 
Of course, the word faith on its own. In other words, as we speak of having faith in Christ, faith on its own means to believe. And it's a believing to the point of giving your whole self to it. Having faith. But here the apostle speaks, as he does elsewhere, of the faith. To mean the Christian gospel. And all the teaching and instruction that goes with it. Obedience to the faith. Perhaps a few of the most helpful examples of where the faith is mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. And there's quite a lot of them. Let me give you three. First of all, in Ephesians 4, where Paul says, Till we all come, so we're not all there yet, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a perfect man, in other words, maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, Paul's writing to a Christian church. All have professed faith in Christ, but they have not as yet come to the full and complete unity of the faith, which Paul links to spiritual maturity, which is the meaning of the phrase, a perfect man. Therefore, before every Christian lies a path of sanctification, growing in holiness and understanding and obedience. There lies before every church a path along which its members collectively become increasingly united in the faith, which means being in agreement about the truth and doctrine of God's word and about its application in our lives together. There is an ongoing growing into maturity, which ultimately is to grow up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, put simply to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus. His life, of course, was marked out by obedience, so yours must be too. Another scripture, Colossians 2, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So Paul again is speaking about spiritual maturity, spiritual stability, and he states that it consists of two things, being rooted and built up in Christ and established or mature in the faith. So he puts being established in Christ and being established in the faith side by side. He tells us very clearly that the faith is something which must be taught. It's the truth in God's word. That's what the faith is. And if you want to grow up in the things of Christ, you cannot do it without the faith. The two things go together. That's what the faith, that's what Christian doctrine actually is all about. It's to make you more like Christ. The two things dovetail together, you see. A clearly defined body of teaching in the Bible which must be taught in order that we can be obedient to it and in doing that, we become more and more like Christ. You can't be obedient if you don't know what it is you're supposed to be doing. And to just say in a very simplistic way, be like Jesus is not enough. Now, being like Jesus is obviously the goal. 
But we need more help and instruction than an exhortation that only says, be like Jesus. If be like Jesus was the only thing we needed to hear, that would be the only message that God inspired his apostles to say in the New Testament. Paul's letters will be very, very brief. Dear believers, be like Jesus. End of. But they go into far more detail than that because we need far more help. We need far more clarity. We need far more instruction. And we're slow learners. And we're quick to forget. We need to be taught in order that we might obey. The, the little epistle of Jude, the third verse, conter, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Which is simply to remind you that the whole body of teaching that any Christian will ever need has once for everyone been delivered. You are holding it on your lap in your Bible. It's all there. Your Bible is the faith. It's there. Everything you require. You can't know what Jesus is like without an open Bible. If you would be like Jesus, how can you know what he is like unless you open the word of God and, and see what he's like? And through it, ask the Lord to help you and to change you. Obedience to the faith means living your life according to this book, the Bible. It's in the Bible that you learn what it means to be like Jesus and to have his mind. Three things which will help to settle and establish you for the year that lies ahead. Remember that you are the object of God's constant love and that you have received his grace if you're a Christian. You are the called of Christ. You've been called into fellowship with Christ Jesus. That is the position that you are in. That is what God has done to you. You are in fellowship with Christ. You are his. He is yours. And you've been called to be one of the saints, which means that your whole identity now is of one who has been set apart from this world to know and love and follow Christ. That's who you are. And so do it. Obedient to the faith. And so whatever opportunities God places before you, whatever trials and difficulties he may have reserved for you, you will be equipped and prepared through him and for his name. You've known God's love. You've known God's grace. You've heard his call. He's done his work. You have your Bible. Be obedient through Christ, for Christ, in 2017.